Namaste, everyone. This is Baba Shiva Ram Sarasvati, and you're listening to Dharma Talk. Today's show is absolutely one of my favorite topics in the entire, in all, in all of duality and non-duality. Today we're going to talk about the great god, Shiva. Um, so, if we start looking at Shiva from our present Western con- uh, uh, consciousness, our, our, our current co- cultural context, we can start out by thinking of Shiva as kind of the god of primal nature. Um, the iconography of, of Shiva often depicts Shiva in a, in a, a primal forest, a dark, deep forest, and he's sitting placidly in meditation, in samadhi. Um, the worship of Shiva, uh, at least two scholars that I've, I've read, the worship of Shiva uh, really extends before the Vedas, um, and maybe even before written language. There's some very interesting archaeological evidence of the worship, the worship of a deity um, very similar to, to Shiva before, before our recorded history. So he really is, he's a very, he's the primordial god. Um, one of the 108 names of Shiva is Hashapati, the lord of the animals. So in our, in our Western consciousness, um, a lot of us think of spirituality as something that is, is easiest out in, in wild nature, out amongst the, you know, the, under the sky and, and with the animals and, and the, the trees and all these different forms of life all around you. Um, many, many in the West talk about having a kind of a primal spiritual experience that they can't quite define. Well, this is Shiva. This is, this is one of the ways that one can interact with Shiva. Certainly the, you know, the classic sadhu wandering alone in the forest, uh, lost in God, following Shiva through the forest, uh, completely free of worldly detachments, um, free of, of, of the ignorance of ego, uh, kind of a, a spirit that's still in a body, that, that the body doesn't, the, the body isn't calling the shots anymore, right? Because the sadhu knows that he is not his body. The Shaivite monastic wandering in, in, in the forest like this um, is, a great, is a great, you know, kind of initial way to think about who is this deity that would be worshipped uh, by his ascetics in this way, by wandering in the Himalayas, wandering in the forest. Um, in the Rig Vedas, <coughs> Rudra is, is uh, prominent, and most scholars think that our modern day, the deity we think of as Shiva, was manifesting, that, that Rudra is a, is a manifestation of Shiva. Um, in the iconography, we see Lord Shiva usually as a placid ascetic uh, 
His skin is white because he's covered in ashes. He's holding, depending on the, the tradition and the iconography, often though um, an axe, uh, a dumru, a, a little hand drum, uh, a mala, uh, and very often a trident, which is one of the chief iconographic markers of, of Shiva. And in, indeed, wandering ascetics in, in present-day India carry a, a trident with them as a part of their, their monastic uh, practice everywhere they go. Um, one scholar pointed out that Rudra and his hunting hounds can still be seen in the night sky to, uh, in present times uh, in the constellation of Orion. Um, there's been an increasing trend since the 1960s to try to look for commonalities between different uh, pantheons, uh, particularly the, the Western pantheon and the, the Indian pantheons. Um, so Shiva's a multi-dimensional deity, and what I mean by that is um, you see Shiva in, in some art riding his bull Nandi and uh, down a, a dirt road kind of at sunset being chased by a gang of, of uh, goblins and demons that have all converted over to his loyalty. Uh, you know, just a picture of, of Lord Shiva with his, his matted locks flying behind his head as he races ahead on the bull. Uh, you know, a, 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 an iconography of, of, of chaos, it's of wildness. Um, and then, then there's Shiva meditating in the forest, and then there's Shiva, the proud father of... Lord Ganesha and Lord Katakaya, uh, proud husband of, of Parvati. You see iconography of Shiva as, as essentially a family man. And these are all true. These are all aspects of Shiva. The, in, his, in his manifestation as the god of protection, Shiva manifests as the, the jet black god Bhairava who has a ferocious black dog as a companion. Um, and there's nothing that's not terrifying about Bhairava. But this is, the, this is the same Shiva. Shiva manifests in different ways according to need, uh, often according to the need of his devotees that call on him. Um, so the, the, the core, perhaps, of Shaivite devotion is letting go of attachments and realizing that the more you let go of, the more you have. Because when I'm clinging to these, these attachments around me, and I'm talking about attachments of, to people, to items, to roles, to statuses, whatever, attachments, um, When I'm in, when I'm, I'm, I'm bogged down in duality in these attachments. I've moved away from unity with the one, with the all, right? 
um, it has been my experience that when I'm bogged down in a in a a worldly transaction or a, a you know going to the market or or whatever, I have to keep keep the mantra going to keep the connection with Shiva going because I'll fall. All of these sights and sounds around me will seduce me, and I'll fall into the illusion of Maya again. Shiva's there to keep me out of the illusion and focused on on unity and harmony harmony with with him with the brahman um so letting go of those attachments so that they become less and less seductive over time frees me up for union with shiva and and that's where the bliss is a, a lot of times those attachments that i've i've selected for myself um are really just artifacts of, of me chasing the endless cycle of desire. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with having a friend, but my attachment to the friendship is a different matter entirely. Um, if the friendship involves uh, a communication with, with another being, uh, a sense of oneness with that being, a sense of, of sharing perception and consciousness, um, that's a wonderful thing. But when the friend becomes my friend, now it's an attachment. And I, I can keep the person in my life, but I probably should reevaluate. This isn't my anything. This is a person that I'm sharing certain kinds of experiences with. I don't own that person by virtue of the fact that I'm sharing experiences with them. Um, uh, you know, attachments can ruin professional life, right? Because if my true motive for pursuing the profession uh, is so that I can gratify the endless stream of desires and uh, be able to act on my attachments and, and build up a bigger collection of attachments, then I'm doing something terrible for myself. I don't have to get rid of the profession, but I do have to get rid of the attachment to the profession. You don't, you don't necessarily have to go into a forest wearing a loincloth <clears throat> to start dropping off attachments. Um, I would think the average householder doesn't, you know, the sincere practitioner householder doesn't spend a huge amount of time wandering in forests, but they have sincere, consistent practices that gradually move you know, the ego to the back and union with, with the deity to, to the front. So this is why I love Shiva, because he's constantly reminding me that my attachments are, are sources of suffering, that these are, these are things that are not going to gratify me. Letting go completely and surrendering to unity is what's actually going to give me what I was wanting to get from the attachments. So speaking of ascetics, in, in India for a, a long time and in, in continuing into the present day, the Aghori sadhus, uh, especially in the age of the internet, have built up some, some fame because they're really scary looking. They're coated in, in ashes, uh, sometimes from the sacred fire, sometimes from a cremation ground. Uh, they carry actual skulls. 
they worship in the cremation ground at night. Uh, very hmm, outside the mainstream culture. And, and they've been around so long that the mainstream cultures of India have changed, yet they've been outside of almost all of them. Um, but these are beings that have really experienced what happens when you start dropping attachments. And, and I suspect they dropped some attachments, they were happy with the results, and they dropped some more attachments, and at some point they were agori. But they're wonderful reminders to all of us that um, all attachments are ultimately optional. These are things that I'm choosing for myself. Um, and the word agori means without fear. So what they've done is they've surrendered completely in a relationship with Shiva and, and, and Kali also. Um, the illusion uh, of isolation and division has been broken. They've surrendered their fear and they've put total trust into their, into their beloved deities. And so they're able to do things that most of us would not be comfortable doing, like spending the night uh, chanting mantras in a, in a dark cremation ground. <clears throat> there are all different kinds of ways to experience Shiva, and I suspect it's not kind of an either-or thing. It's we, we gravitate toward the practices that we're, that we're competent to to excel in right now. And then after that, after that, we've met the kind of the prerequisites, the experiential prerequisites for the next set of practices, and then we engaged in those. Um, and why couldn't that kind of a process continue across a number of incarnations? There's some interesting lore associated with Shiva that kind of touches on this. Um, now, the the stories differ with different tr traditions, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not instructive. And uh, one of my favorite is that a, a young girl fell in love with Lord Shiva, just head over heels in love with Shiva, and she wanted, she wanted nothing else. She was consumed with romantic love for Lord Shiva. And according to to this particular story, she spends 108 lifetimes doing pur purifying austerities so that she can be born into an incarnation where she can marry Lord Shiva. And in fact, in some Shiva uh, hymns and in some iconography, he's wearing a mala with 108 human skulls. And in some traditions, that's interpreted as Parvati's skulls for all of those 108 incarnations, lifetimes, uh, of serious purifying austerities. And then finally, at the end of it, we have the union of, of, of Shiva and Parvati, and, and they have the Lord of Wisdom, Lord Ganesha, the remover of obstacles, um, and Kartikeya, the ultimate warrior for sons. Um, 
but within this particular story, I guess the lesson is this person decided what they wanted in their relationship with their deity, and they didn't stop until they had achieved the goal. So I, I aspire to that kind of tenacity, that um, the kind of tenacity that can stretch across incarnations. Um, I think Shiv is popular. I think he's he's romanticized in the West because, and in and in India too, um, Shiva redefines your relationship to change. Now think about a lot of our our minor tra- and major traumas in life involve when you cart when you dissect them down to their essence, they involve change, particularly unexpected change, change seems to be an enemy that's lurking around, you know, an unknown corner some distance ahead. And, and I think a lot of us in the West grow up fearing change. We like stability. Get, get things to where it's tolerable uh, and then hold it together. And that's the incarnation. However, that's not the only way, that's not the only relationship that I can have with change. I can see change as an opportunity for progress. I can see change as a, um, if I embrace change, if I trust Shiva with my destiny and say, okay, now that I've, now that I've developed a relationship with Lord Shiva and I've asked him to take control for this part of my development, since I'm kind of a spiritual toddler here in samsara, Take control of my destiny and help me to walk where I need to walk. Help me get to the right destination. And, and if you don't mind, uh, nudge me if I get off on a side road that I, I've convinced myself is a shortcut, right? Change is, change, is the only, change is the only way progress can happen. Radical change is the only way radical progress can happen. Um, and when Shiva is your guru, your, your, your ultimate guru, I think that's, the, that's one of the big lessons he teaches over and over and over. Do not fear change. Don't seek reckless change. But when your karma bends in a certain direction, when your circumstances involve change, there's nothing to be afraid about. There's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing at all. If the universe had not changed developmentally before it was time for me to be here, there would have been no planet for me to be on. The, the, the earth that I'm walking on right now is a result of constant change, and the constant change will continue. So if I'm going to be happy, and I have to be honest with you, that's a goal of mine. I value subjective happiness. If I'm going to be happy, my relationship has to, with ch- to change has to be positive. And I can't allow fear to alter my relationship with change. I need to seek change. And Shiva is the embodiment of continuous transformation. He transforms what is into what, is, what will be. And it's, it's something that happens, you know, sub-nanosecond by sub-nanosecond. So when I worship Shiva, I learn how 
to feel comfortable riding on that bull with him at 90 miles an hour. Things are going so fast. Things are changing so much. But they don't have to be afraid because Shiva's at the wheel. That's a very, very Western interpretation of, of Shiva. But right now we're in the West, and there are plenty of teachers in India who can take over where I leave off. But I'm going to start with where I am, <clears throat> which is in the West. That's where we're living right now. So Shiva, in my experience, has been that Shiva can redefine terror and fear into an experience of exhilaration. Uh, probably the perfect common example of this is a roller coaster. Now, I don't like roller coasters, but I have been on them. And I understand that the trick of a roller coaster is to reframe the fear into a sense of exhilaration. Well, I can do that in life. Uh, when unexpected circumstances arise, I can say, hey, here's some change. I bet Shiva's behind this. I'm going to embrace this with a sense of exhilaration, and I'm excited to see how this comes out. This is interesting. Um, and then another thing that I think, an effect of worshiping Shiva that I've seen in my life again and again is he transforms, to, 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 to help me to, ex, to experience exhilaration instead of fear in, as I go through life, and I'm not talking about bungee jumping, I'm talking about you know, going to the bank or, or getting a letter in the mail or someone you care about is, is sick, the scary stuff. Shiva can transform that energy that's manifesting as fear into energy that I can use for other purposes. If, if I'm worried about a sick friend, the energy that would have gone into fear can go into supporting that sick friend. Or uh, spending time with my deity uh, offering puja on behalf of my sick friend who can't offer puja for themselves. The fear is just energy going kind of into a heat sink where it just gets hot and it doesn't do, there's no work performed. Shiva as guru teaches me to transform that energy of fear. Think how much energy there is in fear. Transform that into energy that I can put into purifying austerities, uh, karma yoga, working with others, good stuff, karma purifying things. And, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that we have, we live in the Kali Yuga, which is the toughest age of the, the big uh, cosmic cycle. But we have the Tantra, the wonder of the Tantra. Um, and we'll talk about the Tantra a whole, the Tantra is a whole lot on this show. And here's how I would summarize. You hear about, about Tantric sex or Tantric this or that. At, at their heart. This is what the Tantra is. It's an emergency kit for those of us living in the Kali Yuga to be able to be able to do things much more efficiently than in prior epics 
For example, if you wanted to purify a huge amount of karma in the Vedic period, you needed, I believe, three separate classes of priests to perform different functions during the Vedic rituals. It cost a lot of money. It was it was a big or it was a big thing that involved a lot of people, a great expense. Um, but they had it easier than we have it now, right? They they didn't live in the kind of disharmony and conflict that we live in. So the universe is the Brahman is ever just, and we have the tantras, and they allow us to purify karma with very great efficiency, using simple methods and we'll talk about some of those methods specifically but have you ever had someone show you how to do something a new way and it made it much uh, much easier well that's what the tantra is we and the the worship of shiva i think is more tantric than i mean it's it's a shiva is a deeply non-dualistic deity by nature and the tantras make worship of Shiva so much easier. We'll go into the specifics on that uh, later. So what Shiva's helping me to do is to realize that my ego is an arbitrary construct that I put together. It's an explanation to myself of what I am. So if I don't, if I don't understand that I'm an incarnation of divine consciousness, that came from the Brahman and will return eventually to the Brahman. I make up stories about myself, narratives, right? Uh, I like uh, country music. I don't like uh, uh, corn. I like Sue. I don't like Paul. I have these sets, these, these arbitrary sets of... Uh, aspects of identity that I've put together since infancy to describe myself. Now, as a worshiper of Shiva, I know that eventually I'm going to let go of that arbitrary narrative of myself and allow Shiva to teach me what I really am, which is, is a whole lot different than what most of us think we are. We're... Um, At, at my core, right? At your core. Um, at your hamster's core. At, 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 your, at the blue jay in the backyard's core. All nodes of divine consciousness that don't require an explanation, right? It's my schema of explanations of what I am that I've come up with that require an explanation. At my core as a note of divine consciousness, when all attachments have been abandoned and union have, has been permanently achieved, um, there's very little about the accidents of my appearance or, or my preferences or behaviors that's permanent. That's all, that, that's, that's not eternal. Um, so, Shiva has kind of a, when you, when you do a lot of reading about Shiva, when you start worshiping Shiva, <clears throat> you begin to have an experience of Shiva. You begin to understand that Shiva is at the heart of primal creation. Um, Shiva is divine consciousness. Parvati 
is divine energy. Shiva Shakti. Um, Shiva is meditating um, and directing consciousness to create what we experience as matter. Parvati is acting constantly. All action, all energy is the energy of the primal goddess moving through the creation. Uh, the energy of the goddess ultimately powers all actions. Um, so the, the worship of Shiva, Shiva takes this into account. The, 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 the union of consciousness and energy uh, causing the manifestation of all that, all that exists, of all that is perceivable. The lingam uh, usually is kind of a, an egg-shaped, dark object, and it's placed into, it can be metal, it can be stone, but a container that has a well that's exactly the same shape as the egg-shaped stone, and that's the yoni. So when, when you set up a, 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 new, a new temple and the lingam is placed into the, yog, the yoni, what you're really doing symbolically is you're participating in the, the union of consciousness and energy, the lingam and the yoni, the two combined and creation results. And this is an ongoing process. So the lingam is, um, it's not a symbol of Shiva for the Shaivite worshiper. The lingam is a manifestation of Lord Shiva there on the altar, physically. Um, in the West, there's, there's a, sort of an analogous uh, concept. Roman Catholics believe in transubstantiation, so they believe that the consecrated bread actually becomes the very body of Christ, and the consecrated wine becomes the very blood of Christ. And that in substance, they are the body and blood of Jesus, even though in apparent accidents, such as taste, smell, appearance, they appear to still be wine and bread. With the lingam, it's not a symbol of Shiva, it's a manifestation of Shiva. So when I'm in the temple, if I cross in front of the lingam, if I enter a room with the lingam, I bow and I say, Om Namah Shivaya. And when I leave that room, I bow and I say, Om Namah Shivaya. And the same goes for uh, any time I encounter a, a lingam, inside, outside, I won't pass one without venerating and bowing. Because if Lord Shiva has been kind enough to manifest in such a, he knows that I'm a fairly simple creature. I'm not great at visualization. Uh, I'm not nearly as, as, as clever as I think I am. He knows that I need a simple way, a simple way to make tangible contact with him. And that's the lingam. So Shaivites, for a very, very long time, and again, some archaeologists suggest <clears throat> back into prehistory, human beings have worshipped Lord Shiva through uh, the lingam. Now, 
we're talking about consciousness and energy coming together and manifested creation as the result of that union. So if you're a tantric practitioner, your sexual spirituality is going to be defined by your understanding of creation. So, for example, in the Mahanirvana Tantra, there are detailed uh, ex uh, rituals for a couple that are planning to, to conceive a child. And the entire conception of the child, there's, there's puja and there's worship beforehand, there are blessings, there are mantras, the entire, the entire uh, conception of that child is a part of an act of worshiping God. Um, and so <clears throat> I don't know how many of you have been to a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Lately. I don't want to call them out, any bookstore. And, but I remember walking into one, and I, I don't get out much, but I saw a book, and it's oh, Tantra, and I picked it up. And it was just kind of a, a banal sexual self-help manual. It wasn't particularly awful, but it, it wasn't exactly what I expected when I saw Huntrick. Uh, but in, in, in popular culture, that, that's, that gets a whole lot of focus. Um, in reality, uh, rather than a technique for making you know, sexual union that's based only in, in, in kind of mundane desire. Instead of being a way to spice up your mundane sex, it becomes a different way to look at sexuality entirely. Uh, and so, you know, if you are, if you are a, a, if you do practice tantric sexuality with a partner, you're probably not going to have a lot in common mentality-wise with kind of the mainstream American idea of sexuality. Uh, that's probably a whole show unto itself, but I thought I would mention that because the, the, in the Tantra, we want to transcend contra contradictions. Um, in the West, there's a there's a, a dichotomy of sacred and profane, um, but in Shaivism, the, the the devotee most of the traditions that worship Shiva see sex as a, a truly sacred act. It's it's a religious act. It's it's in fact even a ritual act, um, and it's not something that they would that they would use. Uh, you know, for a dopamine surge when they were bored one afternoon. Uh, it's an interesting model of sexuality. Maybe, maybe there would be less incidents of people harming themselves with sexual powers if sex were sacred again, right? Um, it's not something that you whisper about embarrassed. It's, it's like, oh, well, you sure, man, that's part of my... That's part of my spiritual tradition is, is my, my sacred sexuality with my... So uh, Shiva worship can be very all-pervasive. Um, I was thinking the other day how much when I was younger, 
a lot of what I loved in, in counterculture music, I think I loved it because I, I, I had a past relationship with Shiva in a past incarnation, and I kind of recognized Shiva in some of that music. Um, I'm probably not the only guy that, that's had a meeting, an experience of Shiva listening to the Grateful Dead. Um, but you know, that's not weird, right? When you start to understand historical Shaivite worship, uh, we don't have to, Shiva, we're not gonna get Shiva dirty by contacting things here in duality. He's, he, you can't profane Shiva. He's, he's unprofanable because he's the source of purity, right? So Shiva goes with me through my life, whatever that involves, and there isn't like, you know, a mundane compartment of life where we're not going to have Shiva, and then it's worship time, so now this is spiritual time, and Shiva's going to be at the center of my consciousness. Um, I tried a little bit of that at first, and it just didn't work out so well. I, I needed to have a full integration of my whole consciousness with Shiva all the time, and that's a work in progress. Uh, but you'll be amazed how far you can go with that just by wearing a Rudraksha mala, just by frequently saying, even silently, Om Namah Shivaya. And uh, Shiva, I'll, I'll wrap up my personal comments on Shiva. And then this, this won't be the end of the discussion of Shiva, but uh, we'll come back to it again and again. Shiva is transcendent of all contradictions. He's a warrior and he's a yogi. He's a family man and he's an ascetic. Um, he's a fierce protector of devotees and a gentle comforter when my karma is causing my subjective life experience to not be particularly good. Shiva comes and comforts uh, and generally gives me a, a way of purifying my karma so that I can relieve the discomfort and move in the right direction. So I'm going to close. We have a little bit of time left on the show. And... Uh, a lot of my early relationship formation with Shiva involved these old stories. Now, it doesn't really matter if we think of these as historical events or if they're, they're, metaphys they're, they're symbolic or whatever. What I like to do is to find a good, clean translation, clear my mind, ask Shiva to, to guide my understanding of the text, and then just start reading. And I, I, I have a selection from the Padma Puranas, the Lotus Puranas. Uh, this particular selection was translated uh, by Wolf Dieter Storl, who is a, an incredible spiritual archaeologist. He did a, a great book on Shiva. Uh, so here beginneth the reading. In ancient times, the holy seers, rishis, held counsel in order to find out, beyond a shadow of a doubt, which of the countless gods were equal to the Brahmins and thus worthy of worship and sacrifice. After long deliberations about the merits of diverse celestials, 
only Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva remained as contenders. But as for these, these three, the rishis could come to no final consensus. Therefore, they delegated one of their wisest, uh, Brigu, son of the firstborn of humankind, to travel to each god's paradise and to test each of their characters respectively. First, Brigu went to Mount Kailash, and he, as he wound his way up the steep slopes where Lord Shiva lives, Nandi, Shiva's bull, suddenly blocked his path. You cannot see my master, he snorted threateningly. My lord and lady are enjoying the delight of intimate intercourse and should not be bothered, so please wait. An eternity passed before wise Brigu lost patience. He stomped back down the path angrily, turning only to throw a curse at the true lovers. Shiva, you are enmeshed in the darkness of your carnal desire. You gravely dishonor me by preferring the caress of a woman to the company of a sage. Therefore, I curse you that you shall be worshipped only as a lingam and yoni. No decent, upright human beings shall sacrifice to you but only social misfits and heretics covered in ashes. So I'll interject personal commentary into his excellent translation here. I just can't read this story without thinking of the throngs of hippies in the 60s, uh, the misfit, social misfits and heretics, uh, actually being one of the big populations through which Shiva consciousness entered North America. Um, that's a whole show in, in itself. I found an excellent ac academic work tracing the Shaivite nature of a great deal of 60s counterculture. It's historically interesting, and I think it's spiritually instructive for those of us in the West. So uh, we'll go back to the story. So our wise man has cursed Lord Shiva and Parvati, saying, Therefore I curse you, that you shall be worshipped only as a lingam and yoni. No decent, upright human beings shall sacrifice to you, but only social misfits and heretics covered in ashes. When Brigu arrived at Brahma's hall, he fared no better. The creator of the universe sat basking in his radiant glory, enthroned among his creatures, full of complacency and self-satisfaction, letting himself be worshipped and served. He did not even bother to acknowledge the irate sage at his doorstep. Finally, Brigu searched out Vishnu and found him fast asleep, floating in the primal ocean on the cosmic serpent, much like a vacationer on a holiday. Bah! grumbled the sage as he delivered an angry kick at the breast of the sleeper. This one is not worthy of worship either. The swift kick awakened Vishnu. As good miners demand, he quickly touched the visitor's feet, rubbing them humbly while speaking salubrious words of welcome. Brugu was sufficiently flattered. On his return to the other rishis, he reported that only Vishnu is worthy of the honors accorded to a Brahmin. This was a misjudgment as far as Shiva was concerned. We shall find out later. 
The proposition that the lingam holds within, <clears throat> within all beings and all worlds is best illustrated uh, by the following story of what happened to Sukra, Rigu's son. So if you'll indulge, indulge me just a little bit more reading, it's, it's a glorious story. Sukra's path among the celestials is seen to this day as the movement of the planet Venus in the night sky. He inherited enough wisdom from his father to become the teacher, guru, of the Titans, and his advice was effective enough to leave the gods in dire straits. Indeed, the gods feared their doom and pleaded to Shiva to help them against Sukra's guile and trickery. Shiva heard their prayers and led, led his bull, Nandi, charge the guru of the demons. Like a lion pouncing on a frail deer, Nandi brought him to, uh, brought him to fall while Shiva picked him up like a breadcrumb between forefinger and thumb, stuck him in his mouth, and swallowed him. As terrified Sukra slid into Shiva's stomach, he was overwhelmed. There, in front of his eyes, all the universes unfolded. All the heavens, seas, and underworlds became visible. There were the Adityas, the twelve heavenly gods of the seasons, the Vasus, those eight lords of the elements, who accompany the thunderbolt-carrying Indra, all the Ganas, the heavenly host, and the Yakshas, those nature spirits attending Kubera, the god of all wealth hidden underneath the earth. Sukra wit witnessed degenerate, beastly human beings, the Kimpurasas, and the cor corpse-devouring uh, Pishachas, as well as the Asarasas, though those most lovely heavenly nymphs and elf-like dancers. He saw the Gandharvas, those angelic divine musicians who nourished themselves on the fragrance of flowers. All beings were there, the rishis and common folk, the creatures that live in the air and those that live on the ground, the cows, the ants, worms, trees, bushes, herbs, the creatures that swim and those that run, those that blink their eyes and those that do not, those on two legs, on four, six, eight, and those with a thousand legs. The vision so overwhelmed him that he spontaneously burst into songs of praise. Hail thee, fulfiller of wishes. Hail, Hura, seizer of souls, carrier of all virtues, giver of life, protector of the world. Thou great ape, devourer of time, mover of all, honor to thee, three-eyed one. O Baba, O Shankara, O husband of Uma, rider of clouds, dweller in the cave, lover of cremations, carrier of the trident, lord of the animals, master of the cows, ash-covered one, highest lord, thine is honor and glory. On and on he sang, pleasing Shiva tremendously, causing him to smile. Well, you moon of the Bhargavas, you have become my son. You may live, leave my belly by way of my penis. For this reason, you shall be called Sukra, or semen. At this, Sukra popped back into the, eternal world, the external world. 
He made his obedience to the Lord, rejoined his army of titans, and led them with renewed vigor against the gods. So here we have here we have quite a different concept of holy scriptures than we're generally familiar with in the West. And I chose that that reading from the Lotus uh, Purana because it's completely, it's so beautifully illustrative of what Shiva is. You see, I've come to find out that uh, the list of what Shiva is, is is quite long, and the list of what Shiva is not is increasingly shorter by the minute. Uh, in 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 the reading, we saw the the arrogant Rishi swallowed by Shiva, and he sees within Shiva all that exists, heavenly, earthly, and all in between. That's been my experience with Shiva. Um, now, he, I, Lord Shiva didn't swallow me, but he did guide me through the, the really long pujas and the really long fire sacrifices and the stacks of books and the discipline. Uh, that he did do, and in a way, it was the same effect. My ego was melted away kind of by his stomach acid, right, as these purifying austerities proceeded. And when the ego was melted away, I found that what was underneath that was magnificent. It's not my magnificence. It's our magnificence. We all share in it to whatever extent we're aware of it. So with that, I'll close the show. I'm so very grateful for each and every listener. I, in time, we're going to get the technology arranged so that this becomes a two-way dialogue, and I can speak, and you, the listener, will be able to call in and, and, and speak too. But for now, we're laying the foundations for those future conversations. Om Namah Shivaya. <laughs>